turn on this light. Thank you, Jason, for getting me a little light on the podium. Okay, so tonight we're uh, starting this series called Seven Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. Long name. All the words are important. Essential means that you can't do without it. These are ideas that if you have do not have them, uh, you have less than the biblical gospel. Everyone got that? Uh, that's important. When you talk about elements, like if you bake chocolate chip cookies and you don't have chocolate chips in them or you don't have flour, it's just not going to work. Baking powder or whatever. If you're missing certain elements, they're not going to make cookies. Now, I don't know how well this covers all of what we also call the uh, seven missing elements of the Americanized gospel, which is a kind of a whole separate series in itself, but it, mostly there's a lot of overlap. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... Um, Uh, of course, by biblical, we want to basically say uh, what is, is the scripture saying in total versus what is the culture saying? What is Americanized Christianity saying is the gospel? Gospel, of course, means the announcement of good news, the good news of that's found in Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see in this series, if there is good news, there can only be good news if there's bad news. And one of the most important missing elements is the bad news. That will make more sense to you later down in the series. So, um, tonight I just actually want to introduce the series and then uh, tell you what the seven elements are at the ending. And uh, for most of this, I'm going to tell you why we're doing this. So, uh, Roman numeral one on your outline says, Introduction to Proclaiming the Gospel for Grace Christian Fellowship or Rock Campus Fellowship. In other words, what you guys are being do doing here is we have asked you to consider giving a couple of years service to sharing the gospel at Wright State University at our first and so far only branch of Rock Campus Fellowship. Hopefully you know that we've got to grow faster than we are growing in terms of reproducing leaders, because uh, by the grace of God, we hope to have branches of Rock Campus Fellowship in several areas, high schools, especially Ponnets and Stivers and perhaps Belmont High School. And uh, uh, we also hope to have Rock Campus Fellowship branches at Cedarville University, Central State University, and Ohio State University at a minimum. If there's possibility of getting onto the campus at University of Dayton. And of course, we'll eventually also want to have a spinoff Rock Campus Fellowship at Sinclair Community College. So, um, you know, this is part of whole uh, kind of developing a whole training program to disciple. If you remember when we talk about the EPDC, the, the D stands for discipleship. And that's basically training in how to bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, Eight, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So he's actually saying the, 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 uh, the quantity and quality of the fruit you bear as a Christian is the proof of your discipleship. That's exactly what John 15, 8 means. The quantity and quality of the fruit you bear 
And that would apply to you and your team of people, your church, uh, in terms of a, a, a communal effort to fulfill that third ministry of all Christians. We you know, always say the first ministry of all Christians is to God. Second is to the body of Christ, one another, especially the covenant community that you're a member of. And thirdly, to the lost and the outside. And what we're really focusing on here is training you to do that third ministry. So let's get into this introduction to uh, proclaiming the gospel, uh, how we would like to, to approach it in Grace Christian Fellowship and in our campus ministries, Rock Campus Fellowship. Uh, a, I want you to understand that there are some people that are what's called pre-evangelized. And, but most people anymore, in America anyway, are not. And frankly, most people worldwide are not. Now, uh, one way I would like to look at that is uh, Jerusalem, Athens, or somewhere in between. If you read Peter's uh, Day of Pentecost sermon from Acts 2, 5 through 40, you will see that about 3,000 people responded to his message. And if you contrast that to Paul in Athens, in Acts 17, 16 through 34, you will see that it said, some people therefore believe, uh, seemingly indicating at best a handful. Now, many people erroneously, one of the things you should know as a biblical hermeneutic or a, a principle of interpreting the Bible, is never, uh, never attribute or ascribe a mistake to the, to the apostles unless the Bible clearly says they made a mistake in that regard. So like in, in, uh, you know, in Galatians, Paul says that he opposed Peter to his face because prior to coming from some of the men from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, and then he got, basically, he was caught up in religious hypocrisy and stopped doing that, even though the clear truth of the gospel is there's neither Jew nor Greek, and there's only in Christ. And so he should have continued to eat with the Gentiles, even with when uh, these brothers who wanted to spy out and take care of their liberty. So there are uh, some occasions in the, in the New Testament where it's clear that the apostles still hadn't grown in their understanding of this or that. But they outright say they really blew it and they really made a mistake. You should never do that uh, unless it's clear. Because, you know, the reason we have an authoritative New Testament is Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead you and guide you into all the truth. And he, Jesus said, I'm going to send you apostles and prophets. And he said that you can't, I have many more things to teach you, but you can't bear them all now. And if you start getting into an idea that there's lots of apostolic mistakes, then um, pretty soon you don't have an authoritative New Testament. Does that make sense? So, um, again, some that's kind of a segue there. Side got sidetracked a little bit. You'll hear people say, you should preach the gospel the way Peter did in Acts 2, not the way Paul did in Acts 17. Uh, that just represents 
just not very much understanding or education in the, in the scriptures. And they'll say, look at the results Peter got, because Peter was speaking to a pre-evangelized audience, and Paul was not. So as we go through the seven steps, or seven essential elements of the gospel at the bottom of your outline, for instance, in Acts 2, Peter is talking to, it says there were devout men, Hellenistic Jews from around the Roman Empire. Now, anyone who knows a little biblical history knows that in 722 B.C., the Babylonians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and dispersed the Israelites throughout their kingdom, called the first step of the diaspora or dispersion. Uh, In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, was conquered and dispersed, and that was the first destruction of the temple that had been built by Solomon. And so uh, if you hear the phrase, and when you study more academic things, if you hear the phrase Second Temple Judaism, they're saying after the 70 years captivity, in the books, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are three historical books that are after the exile, after those events, just like the last three minor prophets of the, of the Old Testament are after the exile. And so, um, you know, um, lost my train of thought here. I apologize. Um, so during, oh, during that time, that when Ezra and Nehemiah called the Jews back to during the time of Cyrus the Persian and so forth, only a very small remnant of Jews came back. So Judaism continued to be pr- uh, practiced from Egypt to uh, what be, to to eventually to uh, to Syria and uh, to uh, in among the Assyrians up through what's now Turkey. Uh, then it spread after the time of Alexander the Great about 133 B.C. or so, it spread to Greece. And then around 65 A.D., when the Romans conquered Jerusalem, there were some Jews in Rome even. And because of that, uh, Jews did not believe they could sacrifice except at the temple. But they did believe they should gather on the Sabbath for the reading of God's word, the discussion of God's word, fellowship, prayer, fellowship meals. And so what developed was the synagogue. And as the synagogue developed, uh, Judaism began to be popular among non-Jewish people after the time of Alexander the Great. And many people who were not born Gentiles converted to Judaism, and they were called Hellenistic Jews, that is, Greekified Jews. And they were from uh, all the 16 nations that are listed in Acts chapter 2. Now, the reason that happened is because as the Roman Empire in the culture of, of Pan-Hellenism, uh, started by Alexander the Great, as he was taught it by Aristotle, as it uh, became more and more decadent, people were looking for a superior moral code, and they felt they found that in the Ten Commandments. So when someone converted to Judaism, uh Part of what their conversion would be that they would learn Aramaic, that is Hebrew, uh, so that in in Acts 2 they were spoken to by Peter in Hebrew Aramaic because they all knew that was a common, what's called a lingua franca, a common language. I don't know if I need to go into this much detail on it. But 
everyone there at the day of Pentecost that came running believed in the God of the Bible. So Peter is not making the case for the existence of one God, nor his attributes like Paul has to in Athens. Because he was talking to polytheistic people who believed in the Roman gods. He was talking to Stoic and Epicurean philosophers uh, who were kind of the beginning of secularist and secular humanism. And they were both based in hedonism. The, the Epicureans and Stoics' major point of difference was, how can I maximize the most pleasure selfishly in life? <laughs> and they had a difference of opinion as to how you could get the most pleasure out of life. <laughs> Sounds like America, right? So, uh, so Paul is talking to that audience. So he establishes uh, the person of God, the nature of God. He establishes the nature of man, and he asserts Jesus Christ, uh, that God will judge the whole world through a man, Jesus Christ, and so forth. Peter, on the other hand, is talking to a highly pre-evangelized audience. They all believe that the, what we call the Old Testament today, the Hebrew Scriptures, is the authoritative word of God. They believe it enough that they learned how to read it in the original language, and they were coming to Jerusalem. These were well, en well enough people that, that they tried to come to Jerusalem for the three major feasts as, as depicted in Leviticus 23. So he doesn't tell them there is a God. He doesn't tell them there's Ten Commandments. They already know that, <laughs> Right? What he does is he says he realizes that the hope of all Israel is these two concepts, Yahweh, the Lord, you know, I am that I am, what's called the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, the, the, the name of God, will live among us people, Emmanuel, God with us. And there will be an anointed one, a Mashiach, that the Greek Septuagint uh, translated Christos, Christ. And what Peter is saying is this Jesus, he, the entire speech is to say this Jesus is the Messiah you were waiting for and the Lord among us you were waiting for. And so in verse 36, he, he ends, most English translation says, so God has made him, but not, not really. He always was the Lord and the Christ. But God has now made it clear and manifested that he is the Lord you've been waiting for and the Christ you've been waiting for. And you killed him. It's no wonder they said, it says that when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Because of the signs and wonders that happened at Pentecost, including 16 of the 120 people speaking in tongues, at least 16 known languages were recognized in, in the praises of God as the Bible specifically records. And the Bible says that I will speak to this man uh, uh, in strange languages or tongues, strange tongues and so forth. And, and there's this sign that's happening, and they, they heard the mighty Russian wind. They, many of the people saw the tongues of fire. They realized these guys just denied Jesus and ran at the trial, and now they're standing and proclaiming this to us. Something's going on here. And there was obviously, if you know anything much about the anointing of God, there was a great anointing. So this is very important to understand. So let me try to 
bring this to a close because I don't want to spend, I didn't mean to spend this long on this concept. If you can begin to understand the pre the concept of pre-evangelized or not, that is very, that is actually critical to helping someone come to Christ. Because if you're dealing with a Hindu, they, they, the first element we're going to look at in the seven elements of God is who God is. They don't have the same idea who God is. Right? Now, this is something very important. If you study evangelism among Bible-believing or evangelical churches after World War II, um, on up, really, in, unfortunately, a lot of ways in the pre- to the present day, most evangelistic messages are designed to, to, to reach people who were brought up in Christian homes that are backslidden and running from God. And if they don't have that background, none, nothing that's being said will reach them. In other words, most Christian messages today, in terms of what most evangelists are talking about, are for the pre-evangelized. You have to have this concept. It will be on your quizzes and stuff. There, you know, the Peter speaking in Acts two to a pre-evangelized audience. Paul is not. Hey, Logan, could you get me another bottle of water, please? Um, I already went through my water quickly here. Second thing I want to talk to you is about lifestyle evangelism and proclamation evangelism. Now, the Greek word euangelizo uh, is the verb form, which means to announce glad tidings. And it's there on point 1B of your notes. I have it on the left. It's in uh, Greek letters, and on the right, it's transliterated to English letters. Euangelizo. Whenever you have two gammas together in, in Greek, the the first G becomes an N sound, evangeliso. So that's probably not that good of a pronunciation. But uh, it means to herald or proclaim. Like today we have these uh, four, this, four spiritual laws and all sorts of little things, and we kind of almost like, can you accept Jesus so little Jesus will feel more accepted now and so forth? This was an announcement that God has made him, manifested him as both the Lord and the Christ, and he will judge the world. And it, you need to get on the right side of history. And God is offering you forgiveness of sins because all men everywhere have been on the wrong side of history. So that's real important. Now, you get a, many Christians today think in categories of either or, so you get a debate. Oh, I don't want to do, go out and share the gospel in active proclaiming ways. I don't want to knock on doors or go at the cafeteria of Wright State and say, can I talk to you about uh, Jesus Christ or the Christian life or something like this. Mo- many people defend they're not doing that by saying, oh, I think it's about lifestyle evangelism. The only problem is you can't say you're a believer in the Bible and say that, because that's nonsense. In in the New Testament, there are plenty of exhortations directed to the first of all, the epistles don't make any sense unless they're they're written to covenant communities of believers, people who are living in community together. 
Otherwise, they don't really make any sense. And secondly, there's plenty of exhortations for covenant communities of Christians to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, glorify God. First Peter, I think it's 1, 12, and 13, something like that. So, but there are also many exhortations to go. The Great Commission says go. doesn't say stay. <laughs> So, you know, how can they hear unless someone is sent? How can they be sent unless they go? You know, like faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. There are many exhortations throughout the New Testament to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So that's a false dichotomy. I don't have time to spend on this, but I would want you to know there's a concept at the beginning of theology that, the you know, God was first, then his word. Sometimes in Protestantism, we get that a little backwards. But the word of God came out of the, uh, it, it, is the living word of God, Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, the living word of God, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, created the scriptures through 40 different men on three different continents over 2,000 years. And the truths of God were eternal, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, Isaiah 40, verse 8. And the mouth spikes out of the abundance that fills the heart, and the scripture is that which comes out of God. So all, no theology is correct if it doesn't come out of the attributes of God. So, for instance, when we study that God is personable, and we look at most models of the churches that, that, that have grown up in the West, and especially in America where we have a marketing view and so forth, since the 1980s, they are less and less personable. So they're not coming out of the true, out of the attributes of God. They can't be biblical. Now, that gives us a principle that's part of the attributes of God in theology called the one and the many. 1 Corinthians 12 is based on you're all one body and individually many members thereof. It's the one in the many principle brought to the body of Christ. But it applies to everything in the universe. So God is three persons. He's many. And he is perfectly exist in one being. He's one. So... Um, and that tension applies to all truth, so all truth is kind of in dynamic interplay against counterbalancing truths. So if you were to say, what's more important, lifestyle evangelism or proclamation evangelism, the answer is yes. You can't have one without the other. You can't pit them against each other, which... Because of man's finite mind and because of our sin and our lack of filling our finite mind with a proper biblical approach to studies, it has become the most common thing in, in contemporary Christianity to pit one part of biblical truth against other clearly uh, stated biblical truths. But you just can't have it both ways. The, the Bible says... You have to have it both ways, I should say. The Bible says that you should have lifestyle evangelism as a community of believers. 
as you work at, say, Kids Rock or Whiz Kids, it's inescapable that they notice how we carry ourselves, how we love the kids, uh, whether we're diligent, whether we're respectful to the unbelievers. That's why at the banquet we had recently in a, in a Christian from another organization kind of put down what they do at the school, I, st- when I made the whole point of my speech to correct that. Right? Because, frankly, God has raised them up, the, the school teachers, the principal, the Dayton Public Schools, as the, as the top authority there. We're there to serve that authority in the name of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, hopefully exactly what happened in the Roman Empire, eventually Constantine said, wait a minute, ever since Nero in 64 AD, uh, so he's talking a span of... Uh, 250 years, I think one year shy of that, uh, two years, 249 years, or 40, 48 years, we've been, we've been killing the best citizens in our empire. <laughs> we got to stop that. Our empire is, is crumbling from narcissism and, and shallowness and, and uh, uh, pride and, and entitlement and and everything, we got to quit killing the people that don't have those qualities and save those people. That's why he made Christianity illegal. So I hope you can understand. I, I probably shouldn't have segued into that, but I want you to know that concept. The one and the many is that all truth is held in dynamic tension. Jesus is 100% fully God, the only begotten eternal Son of God from all eternity, and at a point in time, he became fully human in such a way that the two natures are complete, distinct, unconfused, and perfectly united in one person. The Trinity, the, the, the God, God wrote Scripture, but he wrote it through the people he created. All these, we, our, our faith starts with three doctrines that have to be held in tension. the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and the authority of Scripture, all have seemingly paradoxical ideas. God, God's word is, is, is perfect in every jot and tittle as if he just gave dictation. However, he didn't just give dictation. He actually created the person at a time and place in a certain culture and time period and sanctified work to them in such a way that their human personality and so forth is clearly discernible in the text and, and the circumstances and so forth, and yet they are his perfect eternal word as if he had di- given them dictation. But the church has never believed it was just dictation. No Christians have ever believed that. So hopefully you get the concept of the one in many or divine tensions. That, that permeates all good Christian thinking. Thirdly, the GCF methodology or approach to proclaiming. What I'm talking about here is not the content of the message. We're going to get to that in point D. But I'm talking about um, uh, how do we go about doing this? Now, there are a lot of people who, um, you know, several years ago we, we – uh, 
uh, participated with an organization that's the second biggest missionary organization in the world. And they had a big outreach in the Dayton area and worked on it for like a year. And da, da, da. we were part of it. It, it. I'm all for it. And they gave these gospel presentations in these large venues and so forth. But um, everyone who's aware of the whole thing is like totally disillusioned about how little fruit state. Again, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain. Menno, dwell with us. Fruit that doesn't remain is not got the characteristics of Jesus in it. So the net, this concept I want to give us about sharing the gospel is that we plant, water, prepare, and cultivate the soil. We plant the seed, we water the seed, we prepare the soil, and cultivate the soil. The first two words apply to the seed, planting and watering. Now, all through the Bible, the, the, the word of the kingdom is compared to seed, and the human heart is compared to soil. That's why I say Matthew 13 and Mark 4, that we call the parable of the sower and the seed, should be called the parable of the soil. Because in Mark 13 and Mark 4, at a time when the gospel was not as confused and obliterated and watered down as we have now, Jesus is talking about the word of the kingdom. And in, all the, in both Mark 4 and Matthew 13, the word of the kingdom stays the same for all four people who hear it, all four categories of people. The soil of their heart is what changes. Now, in some ways, that is still saying, well, we just scatter the seed and, and we let the results up to God. There's a truth to that. But there's also a truth that God wants to cultivate the soil and you can be a co-laborer with him. In so doing, if you study, say, for instance, the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes have to do with nine or so proper changes in motivation and attitudes of your heart that will cause you to hear the word of the kingdom correctly. If someone's not poor in spirit, they can't see the kingdom of God. And if you love them and you're willing to stay with them for a while, you can help them see poor in the spirit. Now, of course, it takes the word of God, the, the, the purposes of God. God has to help them see their poor in spirit. That's why I often say, and people look at me funny, like one of the best things that can ever happen to you is you could have a lot of inner pain or failure or lose a job or like if things don't go wrong, right, that could be great. <laughs> That could be the way God is helping you become poor in spirit so yours will become the kingdom of heaven. Because the rich, you know, like the psalm says, uh, you know, I was envious of the wicked when I saw their prosperity and there's no pains in their deaths and so forth. You know what? The, the people who are the wise of this age, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, consider your calling, brothers, not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble according to the flesh. But God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich heirs of the kingdom because unless you have a, perceive a certain amount of life isn't that great for me, then you can't see God in your need for him. The arrogant, you know, the Bible says that the Lord knows the proud from afar. And 
Derek Prince used to joke, and that's where he keeps them. <laughs> Avar. <laughs> so you, you understand what I'm saying? So you, we want. I want you to get this concept. We can, through long-term relationship with people, help cultivate the soil to hear the word of the kingdom. Hopefully you get that. Now, that's a very important verse. I hope I listed it here. I did. What do you know? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted Apollos watered. But God was causing the growth. God has to cause the germination. In fact, the seed has the life in it. And you can't do that. God put the life in it. Right? I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. God in his mercy, Paul also says, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3, 7 or so, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. One of the things God does for his own glory and because he's building a covenant community that is a family, and he wants you to be his son, and a father brings the son into the family business. That's why Jesus said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business or my, the things of my father when he was 12 years old? Like, how could you not know what I was doing? I have, of course I'm, I'm about, like when your parents call you and Skype with you and say, so what have you been doing? Don't you know I have to be about my father's kingdom? You know, uh, so, you know, really, uh, God could actually do it better direct. But nobody comes to the Lord direct. I recently met a man who came to the Lord a month ago or so, and he probably came in some ways as direct as possible. But he was brought up in a church, and then someone caused him to think about this, and he went on the Internet, read all these Christian websites and so forth. And, you know, the bottom line is God's Word and God's church were very involved in his conversion even though it wasn't one particular church, but, you know, a guy he works with, et cetera, et cetera. So now, with that in mind, uh, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. One of the things I want you to know is there are lots of metaphors for the church or the people of God in the New Testament. They all start with the metaphors for Israel in the Old Testament. Most Christians don't know that because they don't read their Old Testament. So here are three of them. Uh, you're not supposed to mix metaphors. The whole Bible does it all the time. <laughs> so I don't know how that principle that you're not supposed to mix metaphors came about, but that because sometimes it can make metaphors more effective. We are God's fellow workers. You know, we're the laborers in the field. Your God's field, that is your God's building. Which is it? The building? Well, you know, you get the idea. And uh, do buildings grow by being planted and watered? <laughs> I don't think so. But, you know, but things in the field grow by being planted and watered. 
Now, there's a book that I would highly recommend, at least the first five chapters or so. The problem with books today, sometimes um, there are some books that would be better off to be articles. This one, maybe you don't need to read the whole book, but it's but you need to get the main point of it. It's called Grounded in the Gospel, Building Believers the Old-Fashioned Way uh, by J.I. Packer and Gary Parrott. Now, one of the things that happened in the 19th century through the uh, kind of revivalist evangelists like Moody, Finney, and different people like that, who uh, and, and really kind of even dates back to the 18th century for with both Calvinistic, uh, like uh, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, and Arminian, like John, 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 you know, the Methodist guy, Wesley, John Wesley, the, the, uh, he, of course, he didn't start the Methodist Church. He didn't want them to break off from the chief. They broke, his followers broke off after John and Charles Wesley died. Anyway, but one of the things that kind of grew out of that culture was uh, the invitation, the sinner's prayer, and the idea of a somewhat immediate conversion. I would just suggest to you that um, I've only known a few people, even when the, the most powerful moves of God that happened in the late 60s and the early 70s, the, the last, you know, the Jesus movement and the charismatic movement and so forth, I only know a handful of people who kind of heard a part of the gospel once, received it, and their whole life was changed. We have two of them that are good friends of mine, Ned Berube and my wife, Catherine. Catherine heard about 20 minutes of the gospel, and she said, yes, I want Jesus. And she's been a Christian ever since. But that doesn't, and Ned Berube only heard at, at this church he hated going to and everything else. It, this girl he was a graduate student with who became his wife had made, asked him to come to church. And he just heard the, he heard the guy go, Jesus can give you a whole new life. And he realized, man, I have a terrible life. I need a whole new life. So, and that's all the gospel he knew. And he really did get that did get born again and start to convert in deep ways. However, mostly you plant water. Germination takes a while. It takes a while for the head to break the ground, the roots to start going in. One of the approaches that we have at Grace Christian Fellowship is kingdom gospel-centered preaching in everything we do. Our theology class, our, our uh, sermons all have the gospel in them. The, the creeds, the Lord's Supper, we, you, you are, when you come here on the Lord's Day, you're hearing the gospel four or five times uh, by the time you leave. Now, huh? people are word-hardened. People aren't. You know, we've chose not to dumb down the message, so pe people, most people take a while to be where they can say, you know, like they'll come for a year and go, I don't know what the heck you're talking about, but eventually they do. We call them up to that standard. So I, I just want to, so I want to just say this, like cultivating relationships over time. I'm going to talk about evangelistic investigative Bible studies, but if you can get away from looking at the new birth, receiving Jesus Christ with the two steps of the new birth and conversion as an instantaneous process, think of it more in terms of even a human baby is conceived at a particular time, implanted in their mother's womb, grows up in a sack of water, amniotic fluid, they're born out of water, uh, 
and comes forth into their initial birth over a nine-month period. And a number of prenatal development things have to happen, right, for that to happen. Most, you know, like it can affect the child if the diet is good or the mother's a smoker or, you know, cocaine, you know, crackhead or all of this. And it can affect the child how long they get, the closer they get to the nine months, the better. Now, in the spirit, you're born out of the spirit and you can't measure eternal word of God things in terms of time, but you can measure them in the things that are happening inside the heart or the soil. And, and if the new birth and the, is really happening when the person is fully formed and ready to be born. So my first point uh, on this, our approach is I want you to consider and learn to avoid the reaping mentality. John Bradbury, who's going to go now into our lessons, has been, uh, has been uh, he, the first time he came, he said, I don't know if I believe in God. I gave him a book called More Than a Carpenter Read. Now, 90% of the people, 95, 99% of the people that I give a book to read, I follow up, did you ever read the book? No, never. I had breakfast with him five days later, and he was like, that was a really good book. <laughs> He'd already read it. And he goes, I didn't know there was actual concrete evidence for the Christian faith. I thought it was just all nonsense, and there wasn't any evidence. There's a lot more evidence for this stuff than I ever thought. I'm going to think about it. And, and, you know, even to this day, God is drawing him into the kingdom, but I, wouldn't, I would say he's about ready to be born again. But. There used to be a concept before modern babies where often they would actually use a set of forceps to pull the baby out because they thought there was more struggles with birth than they than there really were, and they were kind of wrong on some things. And it would actually misshape the kid's head and so forth. Here's what I'm saying. Don't reap until you're going to learn some things about conviction of sin, uh, about repentance, about grace versus performance. Every person in part in their sin, sin nature has a performance idea about God. God will accept me or love me if I dress right, do right, quit drinking, quit beating up my friends at the bars and so forth. And I'm like, I'll go, I'll go with you on Saturday night, beat up your friends with you. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, maybe you could disciple me in that when I teach you about Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. But uh <laughs> I never was that good a fighter. I haven't been in a fight since I was like in third grade. I probably could use some, but uh, just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, everyone thinks I've got to clean up my act and then I'll be acceptable to God. That's part of your sin nature. That's your, your sin nature has ideas. It has doctrines. And so, like, if I give up drunkenness or if I get to church more, if I start tithing, then I'll be, then God will love me. So the hardest nut to crack besides they're seeing how deep their sin is, which is conviction, is to see how great God's grace is. And in fact, they're directly related, even though their ideas and divine tension. The more they see the depth of their sin, you know, I had a Bible study with John Bradbury last Sunday, and we were looking at Mark 10, where Jesus is telling the disciples some things, and the disciples go, well, then who could be saved? And I stopped there, and I said, what do you think, John? Then if, if it's like this, who could be saved? 
And he's thinking about what Jesus said. I don't see how anybody could be saved. Bingo! <laughs> With men, it's impossible. Christian life isn't difficult. It's completely impossible. Except not with God, because all things are possible with God. I mean, is it really possible for people to rise from the dead like Lazarus, Jesus, the widow's son? Really? No. Every, the, everything that uh, the gospel is about is a miracle. If you're really born again, you had a miracle. You went from death to life. You went from not being able to hear God to being able to hear him. You went from when you... When you read your Bible to getting the entire wrong message out of it, to, to, to when you read your Bible, getting the right message out of it. Wow, that's a miracle. But every, uh, every unbeliever thinks God is this big cosmic killjoy with a fly slaughter just waiting for him to step out of line so he can slap him back into place. And they think, like, they can't trust. When they get saved, they'll trust God for their life. God has the right everything for you. The closer you get to him, the better it's going to be. Right? So that's important, and that doesn't come overnight. That you have sometimes lots of people who are already born again because of the Americanized gospel were less than fully converted to the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the next concept over our methodology or sharing is pole fishing in evangelistic investigative Bible studies. Now, John made the point in his uh, discussion of John 21 that uh, the disciples were net fishing, right? And... Um, there's an element of having a campus ministry, having a community of believers uh, that is net fishing because net fishing cannot be done alone. So in a way, we're net fishers. We're, we're, we're seeking to lead a lot more people to Christ than one next year, right? But interestingly, John chapter 21 records most definitely that there were 153 fish not 152, not 154, not 150 or thereabouts or any language like that. Now, do you know what the significance of 153 is? The number? No, that's the number 70 in the Bible. The significance is that's how many fish there were, and God cared about every fish. <laughs> and it wasn't 154 fish. So that's what, you know, why I talk a little bit about pole fishing. Because if you get 153 fish as a group, they all got to be skinned, cleaned up, gutted, and all that stuff smells and it's messy and so forth. One of the things uh, that we, you know, embrace this, why I want to spend time and disciple and nurture relationships and become a spiritual father, and my wife wants to be a spiritual mother, and our other elders are spiritual fathers and mothers and so forth, is most people have come through a kind of Christianity that's left them pretty damaged. And we want to love them enough to help clean it up. And there's just no way that it doesn't smell. 
when you're cleaning fish, it's kind of gross, right? I'm sure there's lots of fishermen guys who love it, and that, but they kind of love it because they're manly and they don't want to be too womanly or whatever. So they're like, yeah, this doesn't smell like perfume. <laughs> it smells like fish. <laughs> it's, dis- <laughs> it's disgusting. Man, look at them guts coming out. Love it. Can't, I really love taking a meat cleaver and chopping that head off. <laughs> Every once in a while, I eat one of the eyes just to freak people out. You know? <laughs> So Bob's like nodding. So Bob likes it. He loves all that stuff. He's like, yeah, yeah, that, you got it. What in and, and that, you know, like mothers with their new babies and so forth, they're always running off to change the diapers. We got a changing table in two different nurseries in our church building because there's, if you're, I, oh, don't be too religious, but if you're going to have babies, you're going to have to change diapers and it really smells and it's full of shit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, Oh man, fortunately God, you know, like when I, I was, I can handle diapers. I just can't handle vomit. <laughs> like when our kids were real little, if they had a poopy diaper and Catherine needed help, I could handle it. But if they vomit, I'm like, Oh, Catherine, I, I, I got to run outside somewhere. <laughs> if you're going to have kids, they're going to vomit. We actually had like a really troubled lady once that was coming here for a little while. And, and she like threw up right in the middle of the Sunday service. <laughs> now, most people would make it to the restroom or whatever, but she wasn't, she was 40 years old going on eight and she wasn't mature enough to do that. So my point here is uh, in terms of pole fishing and evangelistic investigative Bible studies is love people enough to walk, become their brother, their sister, their spiritual uncle, whatever, father. It's about building God's family. And families that are healthy don't happen overnight. You know, when we started this church, God spoke to me and said, I gave you grace to be an excellent husband and a good father. And I'm going to bring to you people who need to learn how to be excellent husbands, wives, and and who need a better spiritual father. In many cases, need healed from the spiritual fathers and mothers they had. Right? So Romans 10, 7 says, So faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Listen to this verse in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I'm not kidding. And by the way, this is the, the basis of a doctrine that called the effectual calling of the gospel, which is the first chapter, I believe, when you get to the doctrines of salvation in the systematic theology class or the doctrines of soteriology, you'll study the effectual calling of the gospel. And it's simply this. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians, and he had proclaimed the gospel in Thessalonica publicly. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. That's pretty bold, isn't it? In other words, this isn't the opinion of Greg. This is God's word. This wasn't the opinion of Paul the Apostle. This isn't on vest sharing with you. Now, you're going to, you know, hopefully Deanna and I can start cranking things out, but, you know, you're going to get at least a minimum of 40 scripture memory things. 
Because I want you to be able to quote scripture. I want you to know the Bible because you know what? No offense, but I don't really care about my opinion. Because my opinion, in $1.90, you'll get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, as long as you get it regular. <laughs> but it won't get you anything else. It's worthless. But God's opinion is worth everything. And if you look at the four different kinds of soil in the parable of the sower, it was the guy who evaluated God's word the highest who endured and bare fruit. All the other people lost the word of God because of under-evaluating its importance. So, for what it really is, the word of God, which, listen to this, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's the New American Standard. But, which uh, the New King James says, for what it really is, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So, you Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, and those people who Jesus is getting give, is designed to have faith, when they hear you speak scriptures to them, it will effectively work in them. They'll start coming under conviction. And then, of course, that's one big part of the problem. Then, eventually, they have to give up on performance efforts to, to alleviate the convic conviction confess their sins, receive their sins, and trust in God alone for their salvation. Right? That's the essence of the gospel in, in a small nutshell. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Um. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, what Paul's doing here is giving like an overview of the process of salvation, and he's just hitting a few highlights, <laughs> and he's skipping a few things. So God foreknows from all eternity who's, who's predestined to become, and what are they predestined to? To become conformed to the image of his son. Because what is the sin nature? Conform to the image of Adam and his rebellion against God, but not to the image of God's obedient son. And so that's God's end goal. And those who he has done predestined them, he called them. Well, how did he call them? Through the gospel. And whom he called, when they, re when they re repented of their sins and they trusted in God and so forth, he justified them. There's an article will be the probably the next one we're going to give you called justification. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now Paul is kind of jumping way out. Like there's sanctification and maturation and living out your calling and so forth. But in the end, uh, you're not going to know Stephen Leopold uh, the way you know him today. You're going to know a glorified Stephen Leopold. And you're like, let's say he goes to heaven before you do. Hopefully not, but I'm probably pretty sure I'll probably will. <laughs> Unless something unusual happens. And 
you know, when I see Stephen Leopold in heaven, I'm gonna like, wow, man, <laughs> like that's what an awesome guy. You know, that's a Stephen Leopold that I used to go to Old Hickory and eat barbecue with, <laughs> and say you, you need Jesus. But <laughs> you know, yeah, because I mean that C.S. Lewis talks about that in The Great Divorce and other places. Like every human being you meet is actually destined to become a creature that either you would need the grace of God to not worship. Like the angels always say, don't worship me. I'm just, a, and, and Paul and them had to say, don't. In other words, when you see them in heaven, you're going to be like, wow. If, it's only because of the perspective of who God is well, that will keep you from worship. They're going to be amazing beings. Or they're going to be so hideous that you would recoil in horror when you see them because there's something beyond a Stephen King novel. Hope you never read one, but does everyone get that? Uh, Acts 13, 8, 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as them had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. Now, you've got to get this. We have never done any outreach. I can't think of any I've done since 1974 that has not borne some fruit that stuck it out in the Christian life. Now this church, because of doing the inner city thing, all sorts of reasons, because I had a full 60 hour a week business and to run and I had teenage kids that needed to stay in private schools and I needed to keep making about 100,000 a year so I could afford all that. This church grew very slowly. But, you know, a uh, year or two after this church started, Carla was a freshman at Sinclair, and she decided she'd have a Bible study. Now, it took six months to get accepted as a student group, and, to, and we finally threatened them and said, I think you're holding up our becoming a group because we're Christians, and, and they, we became a group quick, quite quickly after we made that threat. Should have probably jumped to that a little sooner, but, um, you know, Carla held one or two Bible studies, and it just didn't take, and she had one table where we had literature on but guess what at the one or two bible studies we met Sidney osborne who's one of the most solid mature loving giving serving christians in our church and he knew nothing about god he actually had been praying a uh, guy had taken him to church a little bit as a boy and he said lord you know i need some christians who can help me he'd been praying for that so you see, God is actually drawing people ahead of us. The reason for the prayer, we want to pray that God will bring people from America and other nations that God has destined us to witness to, to disciple, and to make part of our vision. That's why Hanvesh is here, because of the prayers we prayed for that reason. And the prayers that he prayed, and the prayers that he prayed, God had put in his heart, and they happened to match the prayers I was praying and we were praying, right? And they became like a puzzle that fit together. He's praying. You know, he knows that the Christianity he's been exposed to is less than biblical and is spiritually confused. He wants something that's more biblically accurate, more zealous, and more, you know, so forth. And he's praying that he'll meet some people who can train him and help him become equipped to go back and start a church in a town near his hometown that his grandfather used to have a church. 
And of course, I was like, well, well, let's look at Paul's modus operandi. I want to train and equip you so we can have a church in Hyderabad because it's the most important city in that region. And we'll have 100 churches uh, in around there by the time you're an old man and I'm long since dead. And in those 100 churches, we'll definitely have at least one in your grandfather's hometown. <laughs> right? So... Uh, I want you to understand, you know, when we pray on Monday nights, when you when you go sharing the gospel, people that you're praying for now are you're going to meet them in the right state cafeteria or in their apartments at night. And sometimes you're going to like every time I did this since the 70s, I uh, especially at first I used to have to work up some courage to do it and I'd be like, I'm totally afraid to do this, and I'm supposed to be training this guy, so I better, <laughs> I better act like I fake it till you make it or something. And uh, and then after after we did it, I'm like, my goodness, this is awesome! The power of God and the way that you saw the supernatural working of God. Why am I not doing this every day? I really, I want to do this full time. So, uh, the again. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed, God will draw people. And if you can avoid the reaping mentality, but some of the things I'm hoping to teach you over the summer is to see the signs of God drawing them. As you understand, like Jesus, you know, the woman touched him. God, the Father, by the Holy Spirit, had given that woman faith. All these people are bumping into Jesus, but not in the same way the woman touched him who had faith that if I can just touch him, this sickness I've had for 18 years will be healed. And when she touched him, Jesus felt the power go out of him. That's something you really want to get attuned to. You want to get the maximally filled with the Holy Spirit through worship, prayer, spiritual disciplines, get on fire for God. And you want to be aware when God is drawing someone, they will do what Paul talks about. They'll hear your word, not as the word of Deanna Brown, but as what it really is, the word of God. That's why I want you to be able to quote lots of scriptures. So I want you to say, well, Deanna says, but no. I want you to say, but First Thessalonians 3, whatever, you know, says. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, and so forth. Let's look at Psalm 1 together. That's why you want to have your Bible with you or electronic version thereof or something. <clears throat> and, you know, read it in something like the ESV, which is both accurate and easy to read. So we got, hopefully, point three, our approach. Our approach is um, we are not trying. When you fish with a pole, you got to get them on the hook. And I am very reluctant to lead people to Christ in one presentation. I've never had anyone that I've prayed to receive Christ the first time I shared with him stick it out. Never. And listen to that. And in fact, if you look at the four types of soil in, the, in, in Matthew 4, the first, there was one guy who immediately received the word with joy. Guess what? If they can hear the gospel of the kingdom and receive it with joy the first time, they're not understanding it. They're shallow. Your presentation is shallow. Something. It's not clicking. 
because you're basically saying you're a rebellious sinner who's been running from God, and you're and it's and your sin is very destructive, and you're you're poor in spirit. You're not that happy. You're you're you got a lot of problems, and Jesus wants to save all that. And they have to come under deep conviction of sin. And an even greater, Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Even greater, say, wow, I'm a total mess, praise God. And his grace is bigger than that, and he wants me still. He loves me. He's offering me reconciliation. And it's more than forgiveness of sins. It's becoming a part of God's family and his way of life and his culture. And he's going to give me a new nature that wants to change. It, it, I don't believe that they, I believe you can get them on the hook the first time. I often share about leading the, a guy named Anwar Sawoya to Christ. That is the Lord led him to us. But basically, the first night I was talking to him, uh, he in my office after we played this game called Ultimate Frisbee, and he and a, the guy, Rod, who brought him, was having a, we're having a Coke, and I'm talking to him. And his I, he was from Lebanon. He'd just come, gone through the Civil War in Lebanon in the 80s. And he, like, I hate Christians. So I'm thinking, is he a Muslim? I hate Muslims. <laughs> Guess not. But uh, <clears throat> I, Christians shoot Muslims. Muslims hate Christians. They messed up my homeland. They kidnapped my sister. I had to hold 38 um, Muslim guys hostage in, in a warehouse until that till I made a prisoner trade for my sister. He did this when he was 16 with an Uzi. And uh, kind of a, you thought you had a tough neighborhood. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, on the first night I shared with him, he actually started walking across, across the room. He was going to, you know, to my side of the desk to pound me. <laughs> He was gonna, and he believe me, even though he's a kind of a small guy, he could he could do it, <laughs> he could take me, and uh, I've always been a wimp. Uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. But uh, <laughs> couldn't we just talk this over? But uh, anyway, but God gave me something to to, to disarm the situation. And I said, Anwar, I am so sorry that we Christians have handled ourselves so poorly that your image of Christianity is that Muslims shoot Christians and Christians shoot Muslims. But if you would be open-minded enough to read about the Jesus of the Gospels, you will be totally amazed at who he is. And I would like to have a study with you to look at the Jesus of the Gospels. And he stopped and didn't beat me up. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you come over for a lunch on Thursday? And I'll serve uh, Middle Eastern salad, spaghetti, and Michelob light. And I said, I'm there. Let's do it. <laughs> and uh, so, but the point is, is that all that happened the first encounter was a hook got in him. Three weeks later, I prayed to receive Christ. Now, I, this thing about reaping, I've probably gone way too far. Of, you know, sometimes I have Bible studies with people for six months before I have They're like, can I pray to receive Christ? Not yet. <laughs> you're, not, you're not ready. <laughs> but uh, maybe I've gone too far about this avoid the reaping mentality. But, you know, I prayed with Anwar to receive Christ about three or so weeks after we started the Bible study. 
In the meantime, a good sign is always he was coming on Sundays. He was coming to our Tuesday night UD meeting. He was coming to our Friday night. He was starting to meet a lot of the guys in the fellowship and liking them. And uh, eventually he started dating the head head of the UD ministry and married her. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he comes to me and he goes, you know, I prayed to receive Christ. And I said, yeah. Well, I didn't really, I wasn't honest about everything. He goes, I've actually, my, you know, my family's been send, sending me $10,000 twice a year to live, to go to University of Dayton. And I haven't been enrolled in University of Dayton for a couple of years now. I'm just partying with the money <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, drugs, women, sex, whatever, <laughs> alcohol, it's, you know, and, uh, he goes, do I have to be, you know, because of this, because of Jesus coming in my life, do I have to t call my father and tell him how I've been living? I said, oh, yeah, you really do. <laughs> and he said, you don't know how angry Middle Eastern men can get. And I looked him square in the eye and I said, you don't know how angry God can get. <laughs> and uh, two years later, I was having wine and cheese and, and crackers in my basement with his father and mother who flew to America just to say, you saved our son's life, and they were not Christians. So, if God is drawing someone, get them on the hook. And don't, and I'm going to teach you things about how to take, make sure they totally know who, who they're praying to receive. They're praying to ask the king of the universe to come inside them. You know, people will tell me when they get baptized in the Spirit that I'm a little nervous. And I'm like, if you weren't a little bit nervous, I don't think we'd be praying for you because you're asking God, the Holy Spirit, to come inside you and re be released in power in your life in a much greater way. You better be a little nervous about that. And you better also want to do it anyway. <laughs> you know, It's kind of like giving the commencement speech or something. Yeah, like I don't really want to do it, but then I do, you know. So now, point D here, we're almost done. The GCF Kingdom Gospel message content versus modern American content. I'll, all I want to say, we've covered this a little before. Um, I want to just say here that, that we have three different versions. I'm probably going to teach you two of them this summer. One is the one we're going to get into right away called the essential, seven essential elements of the biblical gospel. Um. And then probably eventually the third one there, the, se the seven missing elements of the Americanized gospel. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom, if you're interested, was a, there was a series we did at Wright State. I have outlines for it, but I don't have uh, it recorded anywhere. So basically, these seven things that we're going to close with in a minute are very important that you know that you not only have the seven memorized, but that you know quite a bit about all of them. All right. Now, last point under the introduction, and before we, the Roman number one is point E, five helpful tools to map the progress in the process. Because we just talked about it being a progress, right? A process, right? So here's five tools. We've already covered some of these. One is that people are born out of the spirit. The absolute necessity of getting them, 
getting them on our turf. Let's turn to John chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. Is this too much info for your, for everyone? You know, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to kind of like treat it as the most important class you've ever taken. I know that we don't think churches should have important stuff to say. <laughs> like we play at our worship and we worship our play in America. But uh, verse 3, Jesus truly answered and said to them, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I believe that the new birth helps you begin to perceive the reality of God's present reign. That's why I'm so scared about the fact that so many modern evangelicals put the reign of God totally in the future. God help us. You can begin to see the kingdom of God when God gives you a new birth. Now, most people have this idea that Jesus, when people ask him questions, he changes the subject and answers a different question. That is never the case. If you think on it harder and study it more, you'll understand, you need to understand he's always answering the question he was asked. He just does it in a way that the natural mind was not expecting. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, the natural mind cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. For their, I think that's verse 10, actually, 1 Corinthians 2, 10, something like that. For they're spiritually discerned. You have to have wisdom from the Holy Spirit to understand Jesus answers. There are, so to the natural mind, they're a bit cryptic. But, but the Lord, uh, the parables were actually so you could hear the mysteries of God. A mystery is something that's been hidden to the natural mind, but revealed by the Holy Spirit in the word of God through Christ. God, blessed are you, he said to his disciples, for it's for you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus answers him, asks this question. And the key in understanding Jesus' answer is to understand the question. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus is like, what do you mean I can't see unless I'm born a second time? Like, I'm way too big to go back in there and come back out again. It's done, it ain't going to work. Jesus, like, you're the leader of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, I say to you, unless you're born, ek is the Greek word, out of water, and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice that's a different word than see. Then, he's, then he continues, like everyone thinks that every verse he changes subjects. He's continuing to say the same thing. Do not marvel that I said to you, or that which is born of flesh, uh, that is uh, the Greek, the Greek there, you know, there's two Greek words, sarx and soma. That which is born out of the human nature uh, is human nature, physical, your physical body. And that which is born of the spirit of God is spiritual. The wind blows where, don't marvel, I said that you must be born again, because you're, don't marvel at it. Your spirit is dead, and it has to be born again. And just like your body was born out of water, so your spirit man needs to be reborn out of the Holy Spirit. 
Deanna Brown can walk around, such a nice young lady, and come up to people and go, be born again, be born again, be born again. And nothing is going to happen unless the supernatural power of God surges through her and, somehow, and the person's born again. <laughs> you know? uh, but normally, the way they're born again is to hear the word, just like in the natural, there's a seed. And the seed, when there's conception, it has to be implanted in soil, and the soil is the mother's womb, and it has to be watered in the amniotic fluid of the mother, which is 98.5% water, and it has to develop. And because it's flesh, it's subject to time-space continuum issues. The closer you go to nine months, the better, and the better environment you make through nutrition and so forth, the better. Uh, likewise, in the spirit... The, there has to be a conception. The Word of God, you have to get them on the hook. The Word of God has to start being implanted in their soul. Like Peter talks about, you've received the Word implanted, which is able to save your soul. And that Word has to be uh, in the right soil, planted, watered, planted, watered, planted, watered, and God brings it forth. The issue isn't nine months because it's eternal spiritual things. But just as there are prenatal steps that have to happen in the natural, there are prenatal steps that have to happen in the spirit. They have to be, start to be convicted. Jesus said they have to be drawn by God. They have to start thinking that, like, you know, I can remember thinking thoughts like, you know, the very first time God started drawing me was at a Billy Graham thing in 1972. And I started thinking, like, what? Maybe there is a God. Maybe this guy isn't nuts. My parents made me go. You know, there could be something to what he's saying, maybe. Well, it was God starting to knock on my door. Now, because we have this reaping mentality, I was like, you know, if, if I go forward, my dad will get off my back. <laughs> and so I went forward for all the wrong reasons, and I really wasn't born again. But was there a seed of God planted in my spirit? I think so. Now, just like in fishing, sometimes when the fish gets on the hook, that's when the real battle starts. I proceeded to get more. Well, I actually read the Bible for two or three weeks. I would sneak down at night, though, because, you know, the fear of man brings a snare. And I didn't want my brothers knowing that I was actually thinking about whether Christianity was true. So I actually started sneaking to read my Bible for a couple of three weeks. And then I'd go at night after everyone was in bed and ask my mom, I read this in the Bible. What's what is this all about? <laughs> and uh, don't let my brothers know I'm thinking about God in the Bible. Oh, my God. And, uh, and because there wasn't much depth, you know, immediately receives the word with joy. Three or four weeks when school started back up for the fall quarter, I, I totally forgot about it. <laughs> I And I got way more into drugs and way more into popularity and way more into to being the, one of the cool kids and all kind of lost, stupid, destructive nonsense. But there was still that seed, mixing metaphors, that hook. And then different things started happening, and I, and I couldn't shake it. A couple of years later, I had some experiences where I was like, wow. There is a heaven and hell. There's a God. I'm going to have to decide God, heaven, hell, Jesus. And I, it's all real. I need to think of how I need to figure, I need to decide whose side I'm on. 
So I'm hoping you see that. So here's the deal. First John 3, 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not lie to love abides in death. There's a reason Jesus sent people out in two. It is totally suicide. It is rebellion against God. It is foolishness to try to be leading someone to Christ outside the context of the committed covenant church you're in. If God's actually knocking on their door, they'll want to be on our soil. You know, Terry Pellegrino, I have Bible studies with him, and he used to say, he started coming to the church, I really like the church. And he would say stuff like, I hope I don't turn out to become a Protestant, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And, well, we're not really Protestant or Catholic. We just love Jesus and we're community believers, <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, geez. You know. All right. So does everyone get that? The Holy Spirit working in their life, you want to learn the signs, one of which is they'll want to be in fellowship. There was a, I'll tell another story. I'm, these are so late. Craig Solomon, he's still a Christian as far as I know. I only see him on Facebook every now and again. But he used to work at the Burger King uh, on, as you go out 35 towards Central State. And the UD guys uh, decided they would visit the Central State campus ministry one Wednesday night because UD had its campus ministry meetings on Tuesday and Central State on Wednesday. And they all came together on Friday nights at Wright State with Ohio State Ministry, et cetera. So, like, I don't know how many of the UD people decided, let's go to Central State and see what their meeting's like one time. Because we had more like 35 people at Central State, bigger group. And uh, But the UD people were more mature and educated in the Lord and on fire and had been because we started there first. The, the Central State people loved God, though, and we were coming along and so forth. So they, I think on the way back, they share with this Craig Solomon guy. I hope you guys can handle I should probably not put these in the tape. But, you know, they, you know, whatever God did with Anwar or whoever talked to him, I can't even remember, he got on the hook. And he started coming to the UD campus ministry meetings on Tuesday night. He started coming to Friday night fellowship. He started coming to church on Sunday. I didn't have the understanding I do now about the, the I always taught this about the reaping process and so forth, but I wasn't quite as far along in getting it. So um, 10 months later, he was in, and he was having, he was, he was having an evangelistic investigative Bible study with, I think it was Anwar or Mike Texera. One of our, the guys on the leadership team was meeting with Craig every week to do a Bible study. And this went on 10 months. He was coming to four of our meetings a week and he wasn't even born again yet. So maybe we should edit this off the tape. But I actually, I finally said, you know, let me meet with Craig, because I'd never met with him except to say hi at church. And, and I said, Craig, you know, you've been thinking about Jesus for about 10 months. I think it's time to either shit or get off the pot. <laughs> so what a pastor. <laughs> I think you named me, you know. And, but, you know, interestingly, um, that was early in the week. A couple days later, he prayed to receive Christ with some of the UD guys. And that Friday night, we cast demons out of him, uh, a mega amount, a number of demons. He got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Sunday, he got water baptized after church, all in the first week of being a Christian. So the fact that he looked at the Christian life for 10 months was not a stupid thing.
Uh, let's try it. EPDC, we've talked about that before. That's, that's something you, that you can use as a tool to measure progress or map it out. First five steps in entering the kingdom, you can use that as a tool. We've taught on those so many times elsewhere. Five vital signs of life. Look and see if those are happening. One of which is they're going to want to be on our soil. Another thing is they're going to start reading the Bible. And finally, regeneration and conversion is followed by sanctification and maturation. In today's spiritual climate, because of the Americanized watered-down gospel, it's a little hard sometimes to tell where regeneration and conversion has fully happened with the people who come here. And if they're just in a process of sanctification and growing. Now, at the bottom is the seven essential elements of the biblical gospel, because this is such a long message, we will not give those tonight. We'll give them at the start of the next one, which will be Thursday night.